first time we recorded through gaming headphones. Yeah, that was great. <laughs> I loved when that happened. That was a party and did not almost just happen again. Yes, Rachel caught that at the last second. So thank Christ. Yeah, because that was some bullshit. I, <laughs> I played some Overwatch over the last week. I love that game. They they came out with this character called Wrecking Ball, and he is a hamster in a giant mech, and it's robots and hamsters, and it pretty much just makes me happy. Wow. That's a good combo. I know, right? With a grappling hook, no less. Word. Yeah. So, so we have some pretty exciting news. Uh, we've been invited to do a panel at Connuga next year. Oh yeah. So despite our crippling social anxiety, we are going to do the thing, but we want some ideas on what we should cover in our panel discussion. Yeah, I kind of thought it might be fun to cover. Kelly and I are both uh, freak in the house, professional in the business place. So it might be fun to talk about that. Hmm. Because I feel like that's something a lot of geeks identify with. The majority of the people in my little work group are conservative Republican uh, boomers, basically. Yeah, same. So being a uh, fucking weirdo. I don't really know what to say to that because I'm a fucking weirdo at work, too. Well, goddamn, Kelly. <laughs> I'm not going to be much help. Oh, well, I guess... Our friend Galen would actually be really good at talking about this. He makes this post every year that is fucking hilarious. Oh, yeah. The one that's like, hey, everyone I met at soccer. It's about to get real weird. Yeah. <laughs> his, his, like, a uh, disclaimer. Yeah. Social media disclaimer. Yeah, so similar to that at work, I have, like, my Terminator toys and my... X-Files poster in my cube. There's a certain things that I'm willing to admit to, but I'm not really uh, walking in the door like, hey, I think abortions are okay. Yeah, I don't really talk about that stuff at work either. But, you know, I waltz into work every day with a ring through my nose, and I'm prone to change my hair color at the drop of a hat, like I did today. And yeah, I will say I did, well, I've already talked about blocking everyone on everything. <laughs> yeah, it works for me. That's true. I don't do that, which is ironic because at work, I kind of keep my opinions to myself on a lot of subjects, but then I just add everybody. I'm like, yeah, if you want to subject yourself to it, I mean, you're, you're invited. Yeah, my social media is pretty NSF, NSFW, though. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it is I go to a really club. fun, though. Yeah. Kelly, your posts on thoughts. Your thoughts on thoughts, <laughs> Kelly. Ooh, if I ever do a spinoff podcast, it's going to be Kelly Poe's Thoughts on Thoughts. Hey, you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Our other news that's exciting. Actually, it's not really that exciting. Today we went cafe crawling in Chattanooga. Um, I have so much to do at my house right now. And I think that the nesting instinct is starting to kick in that I could not focus on writing the podcast in the house. I had to leave. So I went to Frothy Monkey and then I was like, hey, we'll go to Hot Chocolatier. They have a patio. We'll go chill out there. And they were closed at 5 p.m. So I made it at 4.55 and bought a truffle and bailed. Word. <laughs> yeah. And then I went to the Choo Choo Courtyard. Yeah, that is a really pretty place. It is. It's so underutilized. It's just one of those spaces that reminds me that Chattanooga has more to offer than I actually take advantage of. And I always thought the Choo Choo was the perfect venue for Connuga, but I don't think they have it there anymore. Where is it now? Oh, it's at the, the convention, convention center. center. Yeah, getting drunk at the Choo Choo was one of the highlights of Connuga. Exactly. It's a literal train. Yeah. And you take your drinks around the train so you're drunk as hell around. Or maybe you're not supposed to, but we did. <laughs> it's prison rules out there. No one gives a fog. That's true. Yeah. Yeah, so. But yeah, um, there is a cafe inside of the choo-choo called the Frothy Monkey, and it's a really awesome spot. So we spent some time, we spent some time there today figuring out some of our future goings on yeah it was a lot of fun and i almost spent a dude's entire shift there and i was like i swear i'm not a pregnant hobo 
<laughs> Nothing against pregnant hobos, but... I think, I think campers in the coffee shop is par for the course. And that's the thing with my riding exercises. If you're having problems or if you're stuck, it's always recommended to change your scenery. So I might run to the library, which is really close to me. I would go to a coffee shop, but my dumbass neighborhood doesn't have any good ones. So you're saying there's an opportunity. Yeah. Hey there, coffee shop starters. <laughs> do you want to start a coffee shop? But yeah, I do see the value in changing your scenery to get shit done. It works. It really does. Um, I, I guess if we wanted to talk about starting a podcast, we could do that. But it seems a little obvious for us. I mean, it's, it's useful. That would be an easy one, though. <laughs> yeah, we're like, this is how you do it because we done done it. We'll do that and then we'll, um, yeah. I don't know. Give us some suggestions. SouthernHills at gmail.com. Yeah. So today we're talking about maker culture. Oh, God damn it. I'm leaving that. I'm leaving it. Uh, didn't Wait, we already said that, didn't we? No, you deleted it. God damn it. <laughs> so welcome back to Southern Hills. I'm Rachel. And I'm Kelly. And as aforementioned before my tirade, we're covering maker culture. Yeah, so you've probably seen online there's lots of these cool maker spaces popping up where it's like a place you can go and... I don't know, make shit. <laughs> We're going to talk about maker culture and why it's so huge right now. Yeah, I'm actually really excited for this topic because Kelly and I have been, prior to the term's existence, just makers in general. We've always been doers and crafters and tinkerers. Um, we used to paint in Coolidge Park together. Yeah, and I do. I self-teach random little things like I can knit, I can crochet, um, I pick up random writing projects until I get a feel for how it works, and even this podcast, audio engineering and stuff like that. So yeah, I like acquiring new skills. Especially if you have a job like ours where we're leading toward an end product, but we are not necessarily touching the physical product. Right. So that like connection to... I feel like at work, I am a pair of hands for the sake of translating things from my brain onto a keyboard and nothing else. The rest of my body is totally useless. Dead fucking weight that I have to feed and be annoyed by when it gets uncomfortable. Like that's... Yeah, I don't really make it my job. I am a tester. I'm an analyst. I see what something's made out of, but... Yeah, I don't really get to flex my creative muscles at work. Long story short, for that reason, I fucking love maker culture. I feel like it's just, for me personally, it's very reactionary to that. I get to use other parts of my brain and other parts of my body to make something that I want to see exist in the world and appreciate. Because at my job, I can totally appreciate what we're doing. It's amazing. But it's not as tangible. Yeah, and I was pretty interested to learn that this is not unique to me and Rachel. This is a pretty widespread generational movement among people our age. So that was a lot of fun to read about. Yeah. And the first thing that I wanted to ask uh, in terms of the maker movement was why? Why do other people think, like I had my own theories, but why do other people think it cropped up? And everything that I read more or less theorized it to be a reaction to modern consumer culture's emphasis on personally owning everything that might be of interest to you. Um, rather than embracing the frugal past of the culture of tinkering and acquiring skills that would save you money. Like if you know how to work on your own car, you're not going to pay somebody else to do it. Mm -hmm. If you know how to build your own cabinets or what have you, you're not going to pay somebody else to do those things. So it kind of stems from our past just as much as it is a part of our future. The first thing that I read was from MIT Press Journals in 2012, and it was Dale Doherty, the founder of Make Magazine and creator of the National Maker Fairs. Like he had the first one. He said, when I talk about the maker movement, I make an effort to stay away from the word inventor. Most people just don't identify themselves that way. Maker, on the other hand, describes each one of us no matter how we live our lives or what our goals may be. Make Magazine, which I founded in 2005, harkens back to the magazines that hit their peak in the mid-20th century, like Popular Mechanics, which had the attitude of, if it's fun, why not do it? Which, okay, to be fair, Kelly and I can totally identify with. Like we just said, we're like... Starting a podcast sounds fun. Let's start a podcast. Yeah. And here we are. Anyway, so he says, 
Such publications often help people to start a hobby and learn new skills. Moreover, they help the new hobbyists find a community of like-minded tinkerers to talk about it with. He goes on to say, actually, this article was really good because I think that he wrote the whole thing. I mean, don't, don't quote me on this thing I just fucking said, but... As the movement has gathered increasing momentum, makers have created their own market ecosystem, developing new products and services. The combination of ingenious makers and innovative technologies such as the Arduino microcontroller and personal 3D printing are driving innovation in manufacturing, engineering, industrial design, hardware technology, and education. Over the years, the make division has become synonymous with the maker movement and is the recognized leader of this growing community of makers. So yeah. Yeah, I was reading about that too. Like, why? Why is the maker movement blowing up now? And I read a really interesting perspective in Huffington Post. Yeah, I know. But it's called, (laughs) (laughs) What is the Maker Movement and Why Should You Care? was written by Britt Morin. So this was definitely the case for me um, when I was in middle school and high school. We didn't really get any domestic and creative arts education, so I didn't take home ec or wood shop or auto shop or any of those things. And also, like most millennials, I had two busy working parents growing up, and so they couldn't really teach me those skills either. So I kind of made it into adulthood without knowing a lot of the domestic skills that previous generations just inherently knew or, you know, Mm -hmm. were just taught as they grew up. So I realized at some point, I want to learn how to do this stuff. So I researched it on my own. And apparently a lot of, well, let me rephrase that. Apparently every other millennial had the same thought. And that's why YouTube has instructions for how to do everything. Exactly. How to make ice. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) How to make ice. Is that really? Yeah. Awesome. Um, So yeah, now as adults, we flock to DIY websites and video tutorials to learn cooking, crafting, and making skills. That makes perfect sense to me. It really does feel like this just kind of was birthed out of the internet. I remember my dad having Hanes guides to cars where it was like, hey, he, he he didn't do a whole lot of the crazy type of mechanics that would be necessary. Like he could put in a transmission, but that's not really the type of stuff he would doing. He'd be replacing CV joints, which is relatively easy to do you can watch an, a youtube video of how to do that now and not have to buy the haynes guide hmm. and i remember looking up a youtube video when i had my ford focus of how to change the headlight in it so that's something that i hypothetically dad could have taught me but just like you said he was really busy yeah pretty cool i did get him to change help me change a brake light switch one time because i physically was unable to remove it from its place <laughs> it was sticky. So as Kelly just mentioned, millennials are a huge push for the maker movement, but it's not just millennials. It's stay-at-home moms who want to supplement their income, people disillusioned with corporate jobs who make stuff on Etsy, weekend warrior tinkers who make furniture for their apartment and labs, and curious kids who just want to take things apart at home. Hmm. And just like us, it's college kids who were hanging out painting in the park. These are all makers. And when you think makerspace, Kelly, what do you think? Um, I think a space that has like 3D printers and, I don't know, super techie stuff. Well, ironically, that's what most of those places are, but that's not really what the makerspace is about. It's not just people using high-tech equipment or learning how to, you know, fabricate their own things. It's People doing things like making quiches that they can't get at the grocery store because they're curious what it might taste like. You would be a maker if you were the type of person who just wanted to experiment in your kitchen like that. Or or like you with uh, crocheting. That's mm-hmm. making. All of these things have a much lower point of entry, but they aren't viewed as with as much esteem as, you know, people making cool shit with 3D printers. Right. But the point is... Even cosplayers are a part of the maker movement. It's just using your hands to create things. And I love that. Yeah. Yeah. This is semi-related, but I subscribe to the DIY subreddit. Oh, yeah. I love it. But it's always kind of annoying when someone's like, I made this engagement ring for my wife. And you're just like, ooh, I'd like to make that. Let's see how they did it. And they're just like, I used my forge that I built. Da-da-da-da. (laughs) 
It's like, I can't fucking do that. But you know what? Cool, I guess. That's <laughs> not related to anything. <laughs> Good on you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that stuff. I mean, that's cool. But with so many of us living in condos and apartments and places like that, it kind of makes sense that maker spaces are really being born again because we're all urbanizing. Yeah, most. I know it's not a strictly millennial movement, but my research was largely on millennials. But most millennials are renters. I think only one in three own a home. So yeah, that also brings up the space issue. If you're renting, then you have limited storage space. And you also have limited, like, you're limited in what you can alter about your living space. So yeah, it would make sense that maker spaces are blowing up right now. Yeah, so your landlord may not let you have a forge in your <laughs> two-bedroom apartment. I, I was reading on this website, um, and I'm not going to lie, whenever I read their name, like, in my research, I read it ad, as Makered, and I was like, that's a stupid name. Uh, it's Maker Ed. Oh, <laughs> Maker Ed. Oof. It says Makered. So I was like, okay, they're makering things. <laughs> um, anyway, they say constructivism is the learning model that says learn by doing, create skilled craftsmen through apprenticeships. And while that's all well and good, it isn't the full what of makers are. We aren't just trying to learn, we're playing. As adults, somehow, we have intertwined the notion of we can't just run around in the yard anymore. We have to be working towards some semblance of a goal. I think for some, making just stems from the interest in goofing off and using your imagination to play. Um, being productive, it's still an enjoyable and inventive form of your imagination, basically. True. I, I don't know. I think making is just our inner child coming out in the form of really shitty scarves. <laughs> yeah, something that popped up in my research a few times is like people like that it's a productive use of their time. So... I get that too, because if I just sit on the couch watching Netflix all day, I feel like a total asshole. But if I sit on the couch watching Netflix all day and knitting, I feel like less of an asshole and I have a shitty scarf afterward. Exactly. <laughs> that is my dream. I sit with my knitting loom, you know, like the little circular loom and I make hats and I'm like, I made a hat. I'm never going to wear this, but I'm happy that it exists in the world. Yeah. And I've made my dog some toys. And I also really like quilting, and all of my quilts are fucking hideous, but they make me so happy because they were so much fun to make. I didn't know you made quilts. They are butt-ass ugly. I will show you. That's a lot of fucking work. You know what? <laughs> <laughs> I, the way I look at making, or anything like that, if I'm making something hideous, I was going to be sitting my ass on the couch watching, I don't know, CSI? Yeah. I, I don't watch CS, but you know what I mean. Like, yeah, it's kind of like your parents would yell at you for playing video games all day, but they were watching TV all day. It's like that, but in shitty scarf form. <laughs> no, I totally agree. It, it's productive. And but it's still fun. Yeah, it's it's a productive means of self-expression. Yeah. And that's another thing. Something that Kelly said, I, I don't remember what you were making. We were sewing and you sewed this thing it had finger holes yeah my shrug for the club yeah so kelly made this shrug she made something that she couldn't find you couldn't purchase this thing out in the wild so you had to make it yourself and i think that's another thing that i like about maker culture if you can't find it you can find a means to make it right that shrug was fucking awesome i need to make another one it was pretty sweet you used some kind of fabric that you didn't have to sew seams on yeah was it, it cool. was just knit jersey it was the easiest thing in the world and it wasn't hard to make and it looked awesome i wore that thing into the grave <laughs> <laughs> well whenever you're ready fucking love sewing so something that i find super cool i love open source software and any really i love anything that inspires collaboration because i don't like I guess really, I guess at the end of the day, it's just my pinko commie nature. I don't like anything that creates a barrier of entry for growth. This attitude of this is my intellectual property and you can't have it because I want to make billions and billions and billions of dollars really stifles advancement. And I, I don't like that at all. So I've always been a fan of open source software. But part of the maker culture, similar to open source software, is just the open sharing of knowledge. You can go to the makerspace and be like, hey, I want to learn how to use the laser cutter. 
And odds are someone's going to be there to be like, sure, this is how you do it. What do you want to make? I really like that. I like that we're not necessarily creating apprentices. We're just creating a space where people can make things together and share knowledge and be interdisciplinary with what they're doing. Like just because my background is drafting and I could explain to you, hey, this would be the best way to figure out what that angle is that you're trying to figure out on this thing that you're making. Or this would be the dimensions to replicate this arcade cabinet, which is the thing that we did. You could talk to someone else who was a mechanical engineer who could be like, hey, this is the type of servo you're going to need for this. And they may not have the same set of skills as you, but the fact that you're creating a place where people are like, hey, this is what I know and this is what I know. Let's hang out. It's so counter to corporate America. It makes me happy. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. (sighs) Even just thinking about it, I'm like, man, that's so cool. Yeah, that is something else that popped up in my readings, the importance of collaboration in the maker movement and in a lot of maker spaces. It's very experienced crafters alongside total noobs. So you can learn from someone who knows what they're doing and you can get inspiration from seeing other people's projects. Yeah. If you're in your house and you find a problem that there isn't an existing solution to, you can probably find someone else with the same problem who wants to work to fix it with you. I was watching, don't anyone judge me. I love this show, Shark Tank. (laughs) (laughs) It's a good show. It's so good. I I know that like, if you listen to Gimlet Media's uh, The Pitch, which is a podcast, um, and Gimlet Media makes nothing but good podcasts, so everyone should get out there and listen to everything that they have. But in the pitch, it's like people pitching to actual investors, and they talk about their pitch and why it worked and what they're doing. And hmm. yeah, like at one point, one of them that I was listening to, uh, the guy had to explain why their business suddenly stopped making money and then started making money, and he was like the narrator was like and at this point he controls the narrative by and it just sounds like sports for geeks wow yeah it's really good podcast man i really like shark tank when they eviscerate someone with a bad idea oh god yeah i think the most painful one i ever saw these the setup was so cringy there's just a desktop computer sitting on a desk and then this robber wearing like a black turtleneck and black toboggan and black pants. He sneaks oh God. he sinks over to the computer and picks it up. And when he picks it up, it goes burr, 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 and all these lights go off. They made an alarm, an external alarm for your desktop computer so that if the computer is picked up and stolen, the alarm will sound. Oh God. I have never seen two adults be more publicly humiliated. <laughs> it was horrible. Those poor dudes. That's, I, I assume it was two dudes. Yeah, but the, sh- the main shark guy was just like, you guys are straight up scammers and you should be ashamed of yourselves. <laughs> oh, fuck. <laughs> I saw one the other day that they hated on and I was like, my ADHD ass needs this. They were like, uh, we don't see a need for this in the market because this is going to be outdated by this point. Okay, it was... Wi-Fi enabled retrofit knobs for your oven. So basically you would pop your oven knobs off and affix these and they were mechanical and Wi-Fi enabled. So it would turn your shit on or turn your shit off from an app. Weird. And I cannot tell you how often Colin has turned the stove off behind me. We don't put anything flammable ever. Like, you know how sometimes people are like, oh yeah, I throw a pizza box up there because it's just counter space when it's not on. It is never counter space in our house because yeah. the risk of me being me is pretty high. Yeah, it would be nice if you're the kind of person who can never remember if you turned off the stove. <laughs> but knowing me, I would accidentally turn it on oh, with the- <laughs> and burn my fucking house down. Yeah. I wonder why they said that would be out of date. They were saying like, oh, people are going to start cranking out um, Wi-Fi enabled ovens any day now. Um, our oven in this house right now is from the 90s, and we have no intention of replacing it within the next couple of years. Right. People don't just... Okay, I'm sorry. Most people don't just replace major appliances to be up to date. You replace them when it fucking breaks, and some of that shit lasts forever. Exactly. And 
as much as I would like a new oven, I wouldn't, I would buy whatever I thought was going to be the best oven for the money that I had. I wouldn't look for smart features as much as I would reliability and function. So the idea that even if I bought the one that didn't have smart features, I could add them, you know, as an extra product. Fuck yeah. Right. So, and that's more in line with maker culture anyway. True. Yeah. So all in all, I just, and they were talking about the other benefits, like the one lady who helped invent it, I think that she had to, she was injured and a relative that she had that was elderly had to come and stay with her to help take care of her. And that relative kept leaving the oven on. Jesus. Yeah. And she was like, you know, this was a constant hurdle. And it would be a huge benefit for the elderly because if you had a relative who was still, you know, maybe at risk for forgetfulness like that, you could have the app and then use it to turn off their oven for them and keep an eye on it. So it, it just, anyway, yeah, shit like that is cool. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, we were talking about Shark Tank. Yeah, so basically this person said, hey, I have this ex- this problem and there is no market solution for it right now. They went and tinkered around and made one. And that's what maker culture is all about. Cool. Yeah, and I would buy the shit out of that thing if it would come to market. But when I looked, it was like, oh, I don't know, available soon or something. And I was like, I will review you. <laughs> that's me looking at the $500 litter box I've been lusting over. <laughs> what is this? You posted about this litter box the other day and I never asked him. What is the $500 litter box? Uh, it's self-cleaning and... Uh, yeah, there are self-cleaning litter boxes, but this one actually works, I guess. And the waste is sifted into a drawer, so you just have to periodically empty the drawer. And I want to say it sterilizes the litter itself. I don't know. It's got a lot of bells and whistles. Ooh. Yeah. I happen to agree with you. The cats have earned it. <laughs> yeah, and they're getting old. And it would be nice for them. But it's 500 fucking dollars. Yeah. That's a lot of wigwams. That's an expensive shitter. So believe it or not, before the technological revolution, uh, makers and makerspaces pretty much have always existed because there's always been a need for people to go to a place to do the things. Right. Um, but I was curious what what kind of kicked off the modern rebirth of them and... A huge catalyst is actually the uh, 3D printer, which makes perfect sense. Yeah. So suddenly anybody could fabricate just about anything and do so for relatively cheaply. And that's happened over the last 10 years. And that's also kind of when the birth and bloom of the term makerspace came to be. And now you can find them in places like schools, public libraries, independent businesses, um, And something that really interested me in particular is that a lot of schools are putting a heavy emphasis on technologically advanced makerspaces when really, I was looking on um, the internet the other day about makerspaces and you saw a lot of really low-tech ones for schools. They were like, how to start a makerspace for less than $300 and they were showing, yeah, they were showing little kids um, learning about schematics using... um, I don't, I don't remember what they were using, but they were learning how to read schematics using cheap toys. I was like, man, that's genius. Interesting. So yeah, as I mentioned before, most of my research was on how the maker movement has affected the millennial generation. And it kind of goes the other way. Millennials are really propagating this maker culture. So uh, this was out of Forbes. It was written by Pamela Danziger. It's called Millennials Are Ready for Crafting, but is the $36 billion crafting industry ready for them? So as someone who goes shopping a lot for craft supplies, they are pretty dated. I I feel like when I walk into Joanne Fabrics that they're trying to market to my grandmother. (laughs) I never thought about that, but you're right. Yeah, hobby stores are feeling this crunch now. How can we appeal more to young crafters? Um, Yeah, what can we offer that sets us apart from other hobby stores and makes us more attractive to a younger crowd? So actually, Joanne is at the forefront of that, and they are actually experimenting with opening makerspaces. So Joanne Fabrics, which, yeah, they've been in operation for 75 years, and they just opened the first concept store in Columbus, Ohio, that includes an open space creator studio. So they'll use that studio space to take classes, to offer 
the use of machines you can rent. So I guess if you don't want to buy a sewing machine, you can go rent one for a project. And yeah, it'll just be an open crafting space where you can go take your work and talk to other people and maybe get help or ideas if you need them. So I just thought that was really crazy that a crafting corporation like a mega store is getting in on the makerspace movement. Yeah. I mean, it, I guess it's kind of like Budweiser trying to market <clears throat> some of their beers as craft beers. Yeah. And then this was a quote that I really liked. If you want to get people to shop in your store, you need to create an experience that is worth coming there for. Something that is Instagram worthy. Ooh. <laughs> and for me, it's the Halloween craft supplies. God, Joanne. I can't wait. So excited. <laughs> I've been checking weekly. I talked to someone that I recognized from the Joanne here that I knew was like a, a year plus employee. And I was like, hey. When they break out the Halloween shit. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. She was like, after July 4th, towards the beginning of August. Michael's is starting to roll it out. It ain't all out yet. It makes me feel genuine elation. But I thought this was pretty cool. So speaking specifically of the hobby and craft industry, 90% of industry sales are still made at brick and mortar retailers. And it's a huge market. 62% of US households participate in at least one crafting hobby. Wow. Yeah. So and of the crafters today, 41% are millennials. So that means the crafting crowd today is younger than it's ever been. So most are between the ages of 18 and 34. 36% are between 35 and 54, and only 23% are over 55 years old. Party people! <laughs> yeah. And we're all getting drunk at Conduit. Well, except for, well, oh wait, two people have been born. Oh yeah, pump and dump. But yeah, so I was wondering why, why is crafting so big with millennials? And then as I said before, it's just a generational thing. We were in the perfect storm of wanting to learn to craft when we got older, but also crafting aligns with the zeitgeist of millennials. So it's a means of self-expression and a way to express your creative drives. It's an activity, a bonding activity because we're all about experiences and it's a productive use of time, money, and resources. And this particular article did not list this, but it's also incredibly shareable. Ooh. Yeah, we're, we are all about shareable experiences. That's the millennial bread and butter. So if I can brag to my social media friends that I made this thing. Oh. Here it is. That's really attractive. Dude. To millennial people. Everything makes me feel like a fucking weirdo because I have my ugly ass quilt. I keep that shit to myself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all of my failed projects never see the light of Instagram. But if I make something I'm proud of, you better believe I'm posting that shit on Facebook. True. And I remember when you made the latex skirt thinking, I want to hang out with Kelly and make latex stuff. This is cool. Yeah. So that, that really does, like you posted it and then that's shareable. And then it, it did make me think like, I want to make latex shit with you. So it was very <laughs> collaborative. Yes. Dude, this is such a cool time to be alive. Yeah, it's, I don't know. I think it's fascinating how it seems like, even though I, I don't think I'm like every other person my age, but we seem to have a lot of things in common. And it's just a factor of just how we were raised and the culture we grew up in. And it's had such a similar effect on like so many people. Yeah, it really... Do you remember when we were going to do the episode on generational theory? Yes. And, and then we basically decided that too much of it was bullshit to make an episode? Yeah. In moments like this, it's easy. It's a little bit easier to understand why people would embrace generational cycles. That was like the, the main thing we wanted to research was generational cycle theory. And we ultimately decided it wasn't. I'm still into the theory. It just... It gets really weird when they're just like, so basically World War III is on the horizon. Yeah. And it was so like confirmation bias. They're like, ooh, where's the tragedy here? Every, everybody, every 10 years, there's a tragedy. True. Like, yeah, you're going to find one. So yeah. although I didn't read about the World War III thing, and now that you mention it, they might be fucking on to something. <laughs> We're fitting a bomb Iran, and that's depressing. Oh, God, again? Right? I just, I feel like we're in Orwell now. I'm like, who are we at war with? <laughs> Even though, technically, derail this conversation, we're not actually at war as a country. There is no um, official declaration of war. We are in, um... Is dropping a bomb not a declaration of war? No, not officially. We're at peace right now. Jeez. Is that not Orwellian? It's... 
we're technically at peace, but we are in conflicts and there's a difference. There's like, we haven't had an official war in a dog's age. Hmm. We're kind of just using these, I think it was, okay, Radio Lab did a really good episode on it. There's like nine words. I think it was called nine words. Maybe it was 11 words in the Patriot Act that are being used for us to just keep fighting wars everywhere. Oh, God. And there was only one. They talked to the one lady politician who said, no, we. I think that the language is too vague and I don't think that we should pass this. And everybody was like, well, then you're for the terrorists. Oh, God, you're a fucking communist. Yeah, exactly. And she was like, no, I'm pretty sure that we're going to use this for conflict forever if we're fucking told you. You really hate to see that. I know. And she like, tangent on tangent. Um, She was a big Christian lady and she was like, I went home and I prayed about it and God told me in my heart that this wasn't the right thing to do. And that's what I genuinely felt. And I, I can respect that even as an atheist. Someone's like genuine belief and conflict within themselves and their country. Yeah. Um, And she was just like, it didn't feel right. So I said no and I explained why I said no and I was the only person that voted against it. Wow. So she didn't exactly turn me into uh, a religiouser, but it was a good shot. (laughs) (laughs) I guess religions is its own episode. I'm obviously not a religious person, but I do think there is a lot of... God, never mind. I don't want to get into the hocus pocus stuff. I think prayer is just another method of kind of tuning into your subconscious and picking up on things or maybe hearing things within yourself that you weren't aware of before. So I I think there's power in it. I can see that. And honestly, I can respect just about anybody's beliefs because I'm a fucking golden retriever. Unless they're like genuinely harmful or in the case of people who are trying to say that, well, women don't need to be educated or then fuck your religion to the end of the earth. I'm sorry. People are going to hell. Yeah, no, I ain't ain't got any time for that (laughs) bullshit. I don't, I don't think that having been raised... In the South, my understanding of the Bible even lends itself to that belief. You just remind me of a, God, off topic, but a quote unquote debate I had when I was a teenager. So someone was talking about gay people and how homosexuality is evil. And it's because it says so in the Bible. And I was like, well, do you think that you should be allowed to have a slave? And they said no. And I said, well, the Bible has rules for owning a slave. So according to the Bible... You could own a slave and that would be in line with Christian beliefs. And they just go, well, then you should be able to have a slave. Oh my God. (laughs) I was like, yeah, this conversation's not going anywhere. (laughs) Good luck with your life. (laughs) Hey, has it occurred to you that you might be a real tool? Tonight, Southern Hills. (laughs) One of the things that bothered me, my dad had a friend come out of the closet in his 50s. And my dad was like, he was all boy when we were girl. We used to fish together. And I was like, dad, everything that you know about gay people is based on stereotypes, probably. Right. They can be any type of person. It's just that you're familiar with like, did, do you remember the gay character on the Golden Girls? He only had like two episodes. I was about to say Will and Grace. <laughs> oh, okay. okay. Yeah, that's a better, better than my two episodes, Golden Girls guy. But no, I never saw that. He was like your prototypical flamboyant media version of a gay dude. Right. And I'm like, dad, that's your basis. I'm like, I, I knew some, I knew this uh, gay couple in Asheville and I fucking loved them. They were like straight up preppers and they were like, like doomsday preppers. Yes. And Whoa. they were two mountainy dudes. And I just thought they were the most, I don't know, the more experience you have going out in the world, the more people you meet, the more you're like, dude, whatever you think is real is not. You're basing it on the five TV shows you saw. Yeah, exactly. That is something, I I feel like I am not allowed to be annoyed by this because I am not a homosexual male. But if I were, I think I would be very annoyed at how they are portrayed in the media. Because yeah, I would they, too. they're always portrayed in the most stereotypical fashion, which... If you are that kind of person, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. But yeah, I I don't like seeing people be reduced to such a one-dimensional trope. I'm in the same boat. And even (laughs) this throws me back to another conversation that we had about My Little Pony. (laughs) (laughs) You watched some episodes of My Little Pony and you were like, 
One thing that is super cool is, I don't remember the character's name, but she was like the popular, pretty, rich pony. You were like, she's not portrayed as a bitch. She's just, those are the things that she's into and everyone accepts it. And it's not like, oh yeah, you're the popular girl. So you're an asshole. Yeah. I remember having that conversation and that was the first time I had ever seen that stereotype broken in like mass media. So she was rich, popular, and pretty, and she used those gifts to help her friends. Yeah. And you were just like, <laughs> so yeah, in, in that same, in that same vein, I, I, I think that millennials just hate tropes in general. Right. Like if, if I watch a TV show and a character is just super, super obvious, like, oh, okay, you're the, this guy. Exactly. I'm always a little bit annoyed. Me too. Well, shit, back to Makerspaces. <laughs> Makerspaces. <laughs> my little pony aside. <laughs> my l- hold on. My little pony atheism and religious practices that are absolute bullshit aside. <laughs> uh, bricolage. <laughs> I actually had to look up what this word meant. I like that word. Whatever it means. Oh, you're going to really like it. Because you said whatever it means. That's basically what it means. Whoa. Bricolage is... I'm sorry, are you saying fricolage or bricolage? Bricolage. I'm probably saying it wrong realistically, but uh, I've only just read it for the first time today. I guarantee you, like the rest of that thing where I'm going to see it again for the next week. Oh yeah, I'm not going to go too heavy into this article because it was a super, super heavy topic, but it was called Bricolage or the Impossibility of Pollution by Ginger Nolan. And it was in... Dude, my printer is busted as hell and I can't read. (laughs) (laughs) I can tell you who she is, but the sentence where I'm like explaining, I think it was called eflux.com and they have like a subsection for architecture. Anyway, Ginger Nolan is an assistant professor of architectural theory at University of Southern California. She has a PhD in architectural history from Columbia and her work focuses on techno aesthetics, media, and issues of race. And this article was so fucking cool. So basically, your electronic waste, for one reason or another, often finds itself in Africa. And bricolage is taking junk and making art. And that's the whole idea behind it. So this article was really heavy and focused kind of on some of the inequalities behind why our junk winds up in Africa a little bit. Mm-hmm. And how they use it to affect their economy. And it it was seriously fun to read, but I didn't think it'd be that interesting to cover. Don't don't get me wrong, it's an interesting topic. It's just that she used a lot of PhD words. <laughs> <laughs> Them ten cent words. She used so many ten cent words. And I was like trying to paraphrase the ideas behind it and I was like, dude, fuck this. <laughs> like, just, so I wanted to say if if the idea of reading about how e-waste becomes art for Africans and how that process uh, ties into the maker culture. Fucking look up this article. Chaotic bricolage of the novel is brought together in a unifying gesture. Something constructed or created from a diverse range of available things. Bricolages of painted junk. Hmm. Right? Proponents of makerisms in both the US and Africa tout methods of bricolage. However, in the US, this refers more to a mode of playful experimentation undertaken with the aid of milling machines and 3D laser printers. Whereas in Africa, bricolage resurrects the sense imparted by designers like Friedman insofar as it often involves the reuse of industrial and consumer waste. Hmm. And it was really... Like, when I think of e-waste, I can think of articles that I've read about kids scraping precious metals off of circuit boards and collecting them and smelting them. Yeah, and melting the coatings off of wires. Yeah, but this was different. It, it started out with this company saying, hey, we're going to ship this to Africa. They're going to make stuff. They're going to ship it back to us and we're going to sell it. And that's how we're going to help the African economy. And it, it's a weird sort of privilege and misguided helpfulness. In my opinion, the article kind of toyed around with that, but not really. But it's kind of weird that we're basically saying like, hey, you take our trash and do something useful and then we'll sell it so that we can feel like we're being good. Right. And Africa has a lot of makerspaces there, just like they do here. And they kind of cropped up right around the same time. So we have this parallel, but their parallel really highlights the inequality between the two. But they're still doing just as many ingenious things like... 
I read about a guy who used the internet to learn how to make a windmill and he made a windmill to give electricity to his village. Wow. Whereas here I'm like, <laughs> I made a shelf <laughs> to put my stuff that I bought at the store for super cheap on. I'm like, I made a sweater for my cat. He hates it. <laughs> <laughs> I did knit for the dogs. They took the squeaky out of this thing, but the squeaky didn't die. So I was like, oh man, I, I had knitted this thing. Initially, I thought these gloves were going to be beautiful. So I knitted these little gloves, right? They were fucking hideous and they looked like Santa Claus gloves. And I was like, stuff it with a squeaker toy. <laughs> Give it to Layla. And Layla was like, this is the best toy ever. And I was like, you're welcome. That took me like two hours. So yeah, that, that type of thing versus, hey, I learned how to drill a well. It's just... You should, everyone should read the article and then we can talk about it. And you'll have to read it twice. <laughs> Just saying. There's some big words in there. There's some big... I had to Google some shit to Damn. read that. I had to get makery with my... <laughs> <laughs> with your vocabulary. Yeah. <laughs> so the next thing that I got curious about was... This was just me like Googling makerspaces and then I found a bunch of articles and this is one of the ones that I thought was cool before I was trying to dig into the specific nuts and bolts. And how makerspaces help local economies. Jules Peary, I assume is how you would say that, uh, the co-founder and CEO of the product launch platform, The Grommet, noted that what's so remarkable about the maker movement, words she says we wouldn't have even used a few years ago, is that the tools to create enterprises and especially physical products have become accessible to just about anyone. And that's changing how companies are getting formed. Hmm. I read this sentence and immediately looked at Kelly and I was like, Southern Hills were for three things, unions, booze, and makerspaces. <laughs> the trifecta. <laughs> yeah, that's our, that's our triangle. Because all of those things can be used to elevate your economic status Booze can either make you okay working your bullshit-ass job, or you can make booze and then not have a bullshit-ass job. <laughs> so long as you create a quality booze empire. And this article goes on to say, and this was from The Atlantic, by the way. The first is the availability of hacker spaces or maker spaces. There are some 2,000 of them around the world, and these places make expensive equipment, sometimes worth millions of dollars, like 3D printers, laser printers, and computerized machine tools available to anyone. Even more importantly, you get access to people who can show you how to use these things, and that's what we were talking about earlier. Yeah. Yeah, that would be nice, because I know that the library has a 3D printer that you can use, but I would not know how to use it. <laughs> Yeah, and we have some here, but they're, our 3D printers are kind of cheap, so they're fickle and their tolerances are really, really limited. Like, have you ever seen a spark plug gauge? It's basically like varying sizes of pieces of paper, but out of metal. Okay. For different, like, you work in a lab, you would totally, you would be like, oh, okay, it's for, you would figure it out. But anyway, <laughs> you had to get your platform leveled to within a specific tolerance for it to even print right. Oh, I see. Using like a spark plug gauge. And those things are a son of a bitch to fucking level. <laughs> That's why we haven't used ours in months because we once we moved, we were like, it's off level and we're not fucking with it. Wow. Yeah, I think if, if I was going to use a makerspace, it would either be if I were making a cosplay and needed to 3D print something or yeah create something or if I were building furniture and needed to use tools and didn't have them at home but I think the latter is really appealing to people now because we do rent so much yeah speaking of which there's a really good makerspace in town called chat lab and it's out of the Chattanooga Business Development Center which offers really really cheap space for businesses to start it's I mean it's a business startup hub Cool. Yeah, but they have laser cutters, I think. Well, I, I think that actually the library has a laser cutter, but they have a... I'm not going to lie to anybody about what they have. They have a bunch of cool shit, according to me looking at their website. <laughs> and they have, like, dedicated fab lab and then a bunch of wood workshopping tools. And they just charge you a monthly fee to come and use whatever their stuff is. Oh, that would be nice. I'm really into the subscription service thing, too. Yeah, so maybe... Maybe we'll go make some shit, KP. That would be fun. I mean, I have a ton of tools here, but I don't have a table saw. I really want one. <laughs> but the table saw I want is like $2,000. So Damn. until then, yeah. 
<laughs> Maker space it is. <laughs> exactly. 40 bucks a month it is. <laughs> oh yeah, so Peary goes on to note that the stylish iPhone and iPad case, Dodo case, was created in a makerspace, as well as the dongle Square, the credit card processing payment system. She went on to list a bunch of other products, but Square stood out to me in particular because that thing is ubiquitous now. Right. It's everywhere. Yeah. And they even have dedicated pause systems, um, point of sale, like cash registers with iPads and everything. So that's so cool that it was born out of a makerspace. That is cool. Yeah. So that's, I mean, I guess I could wax poetic all day about uh, seizing the means. <laughs> As we are wont to do. <laughs> Makerspaces are just one of the many iterations of that. No, I think they're a really cool thing. Like you said, it really fosters collaboration. And I feel like it would almost foster a sense of healthy competition. That's something that I've picked up. Like for someone to really succeed, they need some degree of competition. So if you can see what your peers are doing and interact with them, then you know, okay, here's the bar. Yeah, that's true. So I competition means cooler shit. Yeah, I agree with you wholeheartedly. And in the same vein as that, that's healthy competition. I have found through working office jobs that oftentimes the competition that you run into is the unhealthy kind, Super which is toxic. Yeah. Yeah. It's like if we were two machine gun operators in a foxhole, you would let me shoot my gun that you saw jam that I didn't see jam just so that you could go to the leader and be like, I knew their gun was jammed, and I let them shoot it anyway. Right. Because I knew better. Look at my un-jammed gun. Man, maybe we could do an episode on workplace culture, because nothing is worse than a toxic workplace. For real. I I agree. I I think the type of collaboration and, dare I say, competition in a makerspace would be very healthy. Yeah. And it's... I think it's similar to just my my nature which is to be supportive it makes me really happy to see people supporting each other and being enthusiastic that their friends are making something cool so the idea that there's a place where you can be like hey i'm just happy that you're here making some cool shit like that's amazing yeah i think that's one of the better examples of human culture as opposed to you know like patent trolls and yeah things like things like that like makers are just like do you want to see how i did it (laughs) Uh, like this. Here you go. And I also I also think it's really cool how it's kind of exploded to fill all of these needs that we have. Most of us are renters. We're more frugal. Um, we're fucking busy. <laughs> and, and we're educated as shit and right. underutilized. Right. And we are more familiar with DIY to begin with. So I guess we're, yeah, we're more eager to learn more things. We're maybe more comfortable learning them. Anyway, I just, makerspaces seem to address a lot of needs that especially millennials have. Yeah. One thing that I will say, the high school that I went to did have a machine shop in Homec, and I took both. So I, I got to learn how to make a sweater in one class, and then I still have the hammer that I machined in the other. That's cool. Yeah. The funny thing is, the idea was, hey, you come and you learn how to use a lathe so that you can get a job using a lathe. You don't use lathes anymore. You use a CNC machine. So the skills that I learned were transferable in that I know how to work with intolerances and I understand the nature of working with metal. But it was kind of heartbreaking to see people exit that and then go into the workplace to do actual machining jobs where it was, put this piece here, program this computer, watch the computer do it. Right. So makerspaces I like are kind of a throwback to the fun of taking machining, which was work with your hands. Yes. And don't poke the metal or it will cut your fucking finger off. (laughs) I saw so many dudes because it'll like, we were working with aluminum, which which is super soft, but if you worked with steel, this would not work out. And you people learned it with even aluminum repeatedly. Like if you're sticking your die straight into your metal, it creates a shaving that that comes off. And Mm -hmm. some of them are like, okay. And they knock it off with their hand. Oh, (laughs) I saw one dude cut his hand so bad and no one felt any level of sympathy for him. We were like, you fucking idiot. They tell you, they tell you you're going to hurt yourself. And he was just like, "Mm." like you can take, you're you're hanging out with a file beside it too. You take your file and no, this guy would, man, I could see accidentally doing that, but that was, you would be smarter than that. I guarantee (laughs) it. Whereas, because as often as he was told not to do it, that's the part that gets me. It's like, this is not like they told us once in a five minute training session. It's like before every class, they're like, don't knock the metal. Wow. Okay. One quick thing 
this episode has reminded me of this horrifying children's toy. So we had this cousin when I was a kid and he always got all the coolest toys. And one of them was, was literally like this metal smelting kit. So what? <laughs> <laughs> I swear to God, it it came with, I it had to have been aluminum, metal pellets. And you would put them in the thing and melt them and then pour it into mold so you're pouring fucking molten metal into little kid-sized molds it was fun but in retrospect that how fucking dangerous and it was probably a huge fire hazard i was just imagine him spilling it on the wood or like carpet and then being like whoops the house is on fire <laughs> yeah bad. yeah i got some good burns from that <laughs> man that's cool i want that i, I want all of the things a problem maybe i need to get on that makerspace life yeah me too chat lab because there's so many things i want to do but i don't want to invest in each of them you know what i mean i know exactly what you mean there is a cost of learning that makerspaces fills like i don't want to okay i still want to do this and i still will do this but there for a while i did a whole shit ton of research and what it takes to make a pair of shoes because I was like, man, it'd be really fun to sew a pair of leather shoes. And it was after, like, once you sew for a while, you can look at a shirt or look at a dress and see, okay, this is roughly the pieces it would take to put this together. Yeah. So I was looking at this pair of shoes and I was like, man, that's like three pieces of leather and those are $200. Like, how do you tool the leather to, to do that? So I started looking into it and went down this huge rabbit hole to where I was like, I'm going to fucking do this. And Kelly remembers this. I'm still going to make a pair of shoes. It's going to happen. I looked this up too, and then I was like, that's a whole lot of work. Yeah, it would be so cool. Yeah. And a whole lot of tools, but like stropping tools and the certain type of hammers that you would need. Makerspaces fill the need for like, not everyone needs to own all of those tools. You can right. just go to a space and share it. There's a statistic for the average use of a drill. Like we have a few drills and it basically amounts to this tool would be capable of 20,000 hours or whatever before it has any kind of mechanical malfunction. And its average lifespan for actual use is like five hours. Wow. Over the course of your lifetime. And that, so, so yeah. And everyone has a drill in their house. And that, those are, you would have to Google the actual numbers, but they were not those specific numbers, but just as dramatic. Yeah. And I feel like I use my drill all the time, but not really. Like I use it, actual use on the drill is a couple minutes. Yeah, I was going to say five hours of drilling. That's a lot of drilling. Yeah, that, that would be like, because you're only going to use it in intervals. I can't even imagine what that would be more time than I think you would actually put use on the tool to build a house. Yeah. Dude, I'm not going to do the math. <laughs> <laughs> it would be cool to know. My brain went full beautiful mind and it was like, and then it was like, I don't give a shit. And then it was like, <laughs> Southern Hills. <laughs> that was the worst fart sound ever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you really, okay. I think we're ready to wrap up this episode, but I have to say there is a TV show on Hulu based on the Douglas Adam books, um, Dirk Gently's holistic detective agency i fucking love this show i love it so much it's so good there are only two seasons i just found out it's canceled oh what a bummer i've never heard of it is it a hulu that's exclusive? why it's canceled um i think it's bbc america but it, oh. i only saw it on hulu and it was so so good and anyway uh one of the insults that makes more sense in the context of the episode Someone uh, in a very serious position said, that's some real farty butt talk right there. <laughs> nice. I know, and I'm like, oh my God, farty butt talk. <laughs> I have new... Your brain is like, I'm going to absorb that and retain it forever. I was so happy. <laughs> I was like, Colin, farty butt talk. <laughs> I just, I, it needs to remain a thing. I need to read those books. I never read Dirk Gently. I did Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, but... I only ever read Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, and that was in high school. It's been a while. Man, I made it all the way through that series, and by the end of it, I didn't really... You you were good to just do that one, because the later parts of the series, I was like, I am reading this for the occasional good joke. Oh. It was kind of heartbreaking. It was like watching the sequels to The Matrix, where you're like, why did you even bother? <laughs> Oh, that's mean. Some of them were pretty good. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> okay, I like the harsh critic over here. 
I like that on par with sequels of The Matrix. (laughs) Okay. So anyway, tell us what you think about maker culture. What's it mean to you? What did we totally forget to talk about? Because it's such a fascinating thing that, you know, I covered everything that I thought was relevant to someone who maybe didn't understand why these spaces were cropping up. But there's so much more to it, and it's all so cool. Yeah, so tell us your makerspace stories. If there was something that you would want to be in a makerspace, what would it be? Let us know at southernhills at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. See you next Thursday.